Before we start our show today, a quick geographic note from our hosts and guests. You know, we might be accused of having a soft spot here on Canusa Street for Mississippi. We love Mississippi. We love Michigan. I think we just love M states, but... Yeah, there you go. Maybe Montana can be next. And maybe someday there will be an actual Canusa Street in Mississippi that we can go visit. What do you think? We love Canada. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian American Business Council, and I am joined by my fabulous colleague, Chris Sands at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hey, Scotty. Great to be back. Great to be back with you, my friend. And this week we're talking about, or this episode, I should say, we're talking about supply chains. And we're, I think we're going to have several episodes on supply chains because it's a, there's a lot to it. But, but today we're going to talk about two aspects, um, of how commerce moves. And that's the trucking industry and the rail industry. It's an amazing thing, Scotty, because when you put things together, the idea of a supply chain is that you have different links. Each each link does something different, and together, large people, often uh, large numbers of people, often hundreds of miles apart, contribute to the making of the same good. And you and I have said for years that Canadians, Americans are less trading partners, more coworkers, and the supply chain is the link between the two. But that depends on logistics, the moving of goods and sometimes people. And if anything has been disrupted in the last year because of COVID, because of uh, tie-ups at our port, it's supply chain. So couldn't be a more relevant topic for us to be tackling. That's exactly right. And right before the holiday season too, where people are trying to stock up on things. So so I'm excited about our guests and, and I will turn it over to you in a moment to introduce them properly. I'll, I'll just say this as a little way of a of a warm up, David Woodruff uh, with CN Rail, I've known for a really long time. He before CN, um, he was also involved in supply chain. So I know you'll you'll introduce him properly, but we're happy to have Dave uh, from the rail industry point of view. And we're also joined by Eric Hampton. And Eric uh, is new to me anyway, and, and I'll give him credit. You know, he reached out a couple of weeks ago and said, uh, just out of the blue, he was at a conference, he's in the trucking industry. And he had an idea about a Canada-U.S. solution to a piece of the congestion problem and a piece of the driver shortage problem. And, and Chris, before you introduce Eric and David properly, let me just give you a quick point of reference on it because it's um, we'll we'll get into it. But it's a there is an issue between Canada and the United States that has to do with the way the trucking supply chain works, and it has to do with whether or not a foreign driver is allowed to reposition an empty piece of equipment from point A to point B. And what what I've learned about trucking is it's all about hubs. So a, a truck full of goods from Canada can, you know, through NAFTA and the USMCA can come into the United States and drop off their goods. They can take an empty trailer out of the US or a full trailer. But the piece that you can't do in Canada or the United States is a foreign driver can't move an empty trailer from point A to point B. If we could fix that one piece of the way goods move and the way equipment moves, it would help the supply chain a lot. It would help, it would be more efficient and it would free up drivers uh, to do what they need to do urgently, which is to move goods around. So it sounds pretty in the weeds, but you know, here in Canusa Street, we get into the weeds, don't we, my friend? 
Well, without the weeds, we probably wouldn't get to eat. That's the problem. <laughs> That's right. uh, so very essential, very essential uh, goods. So let me just introduce our two speakers. We we have with us today David, sometimes known as Woody Woodruff, uh, who is the Assistant Vice President and Head of U.S. Public and Governmental Affairs for CN, uh, Canadian National Railways. Um, he's originally from Michigan, I happen to know, so I have a soft spot for him. But it's one of the largest railways in North America and moves an awful lot of goods, not only uh, east-west in Canada, but north-south through the United States, a crucial part of our a rail link network. And then we have Eric Hampton. Eric is the is the president of Hampton Transport in beautiful Tupelo, Mississippi, a company he founded in 2003. Um, it's uh, an important provider of trucking services, both uh, moving goods for customers and then in, in plugging into their supply chain and even plugging into the rail supply chain. We'll talk about how all those connections come together and how they're organized once we bring them on. That's exactly right, Chris. And, you know, we might be accused of having a soft spot here on Canusa Street for Mississippi because we had a wonderful conversation with the Honorable Trent Lott, United States Senator from Mississippi. We've got Eric Hampton on now. And, and uh, I, you know, maybe maybe that'll just be like a, a theme or a thread running through Canusa Street. And maybe someday there will be an actual Canusa Street in Mississippi that we can go visit. What do you think? I don't know. I think we, we love Mississippi. We love Michigan. I think we just love M states. But uh, either way, that's good with Yeah, me. there you go. Maybe Montana can be next. So with that, <laughs> let's, uh, let's kick it off. Chris, I'm excited about our conversation today, and let's get right into it, because supply chains are top of mind, top of news, and our guests today know... Uh, with all due respect to us, a heck of a lot more about it than you and I do. So today we're going to talk about tr trucks and trains, and uh, and they move a lot of the commercial goods that happen in North America. So so um, I think I'm going to start out actually with Eric Hampton and just ask you a question, Eric, because you have a trucking company. You're based in Mississippi, and you reached out to me a little while ago with an idea to help alleviate the truck driver shortage. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit uh, to our to our audience about what's going on today with trucking as we record this and kind of what your thoughts are from a Canada U.S. point of view. Well, the problem is actually crazy, but the solution is even more simple. Uh, in the United States, on the refrigerated lanes, we're running about eight loads for every truck. If we could use the Canadian fleet, just for the refrigerated part, but the dry also. When they go back, let's say they deliver to Georgia, and they want to get back to Toronto, we'll let them go to Detroit, let them go to Northern Ohio, let them go to Kentucky, let them take a load, maybe two, and two maybe stretching it, but at least one load back toward the border, whether it's Buffalo or whichever border city it is. Let me tell you what that does. It's so simple. It's just, I don't know why none of us have figured this out yet. If you get that guy to take a load, he's taking a load in the U.S., and that's helping the U.S. economy. It's getting you back home. So it's helping your trucks and your revenue, and it's helping your economy to get more freight back into the U.S. and back into Canada because we're using our trucks faster. And they're getting revenue because they're not losing waiting down here for Canadian load or dead and home, deadheading and home empty. And that's that. It's that simple. Well, and let's just stick with you for a second, and then we'll and then we'll turn it over to Dave Woodruff from CN for a rail perspective. But Eric, when you and I first talked about this, 
one of the things that's interesting it's it's kind of a nerdy policy uh a nerdy policy discussion but that's you know Chris and I are all about nerdy policy discussions and and here's the policy challenge today uh you can bring a full load of goods from Canada into the United States or the other way US into Canada and that happens every day you can also take an empty trailer the thing that you can't do according to US regulation is you can't if you're a Canadian driver reposition an empty trailer. And that's something the supply chain needs. There's an efficiency there, uh, but that's the thing you can't do. And also, by the way, U.S. drivers can't do that in Canada. And so what you and I talked about is just that one thing, allowing Canadian drivers to reposition empty trailers would be a huge benefit. Isn't that right? That's one huge benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so we're going to keep working on that. All right. Um, I'll, I'll ask a question of Dave and then I'll, and then I'll turn it over to Chris. Dave Woodruff, we have seen ports like on the TV news, ports with container ships that are backed up. And we know that uh, the president of the United States had a summit recently. Uh, The port of Long Beach is working on some things. I don't think CN goes out to Long Beach, but is there a way CN? What's what's CN's point of view on the on the sort of congestion? And do you have a a way to help, if, if you will? Yeah, no, thanks. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to join you here today. You know, look, certainly first and foremost, I think we're customers and we're consumers as well. So we are all seeing the similar concerns and the similar issues with the supply chain congestion. Uh, CN, I think, really brings a unique solution to the table. And to your point, Scotty, we don't service LA and Long Beach. But one of the great crown jewels of the CN network is the fact that we do service not only Vancouver, but also Prince Rupert. Prince Rupert as many of your listeners will know, is the northernmost deep water port that's connected to the lower 48 by a rail network. And so what we're really able to do is provide some alternatives. Prince Rupert is actually about a one or a two day sail all the way down to LA and Long Beach. So as soon as a boat were to leave an Asian gateway en route to the west coast of North America, it's already going to shave off about 48 hours from that transit that goes all the way across. Clearly, there's a lot of congestion issues at these ports. A lot of the vessel strings are continuing to be backed up. And it's, again, it it ends up being a series and cycles of chain reactions over and over and over as we have vessel strings that get delayed, as we have efforts to unload vessels taking longer and longer. Obviously, as well, as we were discussing the issues in regards to trucks, regards to chassis, in regards to drivers, as well as the fact that we're also importing more and more from these from the Asian gateways. So with this confluence of events, it's going to take great ideas like the ones uh, that Eric has come up with. It's going to take great investment like the ones that we're seeing from CN. And eventually all working together, we're going to be able to get through this uh, with hopefully not only some additional investment, additional capacity going forward, but in addition to that too, some additional lessons learned for the next time this happens. Thanks for that, Dave. I actually have one more question before I turn it over to to. Chris Sands, and and it's for both of you guys, which is, you know, when I think about the movement of goods, I think about modes really differently. I think about air cargo differently than I think about rail, than I think about trucking. And my question to both of you is, to what extent do you view each other's industries, trucking and rail and air for that matter, as a competitor? Or are you also a collaborator in all of this? Because it seems to me trains, you know, don't go all the way to that last mile. So how do you guys how do you guys view each other's industries and has it changed, you know, recently given the supply chain crunch? Maybe we'll start with you, Eric. I do not see the rail or air as competitors. Um, 
20 years ago I did, not today, because there, there's only so much room for trucks on the road. There's only so much room for planes in the air. There's a, we need the rails. We need the air because we can't do it all. And I don't think they can either. So they need us too. And you got to have the trucks to move it off the rail. So that's always important in the ports because we also do uh, port uh, business as well. And that's what I think about it. It's a nautical metaphor, but really no mode is an island. At the end of the day, to Eric's point, we are really dependent on being able to work with our first mile, last mile partners, uh, not only in the trucking industry, but in addition to that, too, in the distribution centers and the warehouses. In addition to that, too, certainly working very closely with our short-line railroad partners as well. These are the, the Class 3 railroads that are across North America that further provide that additional reach and that additional capacity. And again, certainly we have a focus on meeting our customers' needs. We have a focus on helping to link communities across North America to markets around the world. A big part of that, a big part of the solutions that we bring to the table, certainly, is that reliable, safe railroad that we work every day to make certain is, is up and running and able to help support that economic growth. But in addition to that, too, we recognize as well as we provide that linkage, we're going to have to reach out to the partners throughout just to make certain that those goods are able to get to market. So we are all in this together. We are all talking and all working. We are all working with lawmakers and regulators to make certain that they understand the great positive steps that we're working and some of the changes that we've made in order to help alleviate this. But again, to the point, we're not going to be able to get through this unless we're all working together, going in the same direction. I can't agree. I mean, I can't disagree with him in it all. 100% <laughs> accurate. <laughs> great. Uh, let, me, let me ask you a little bit about supply chains. It's sort of a concept. It's always, a, always in people's minds. But as we think about supply chains, how does coordination work? Is it the customer that decides how the logistics go? Is it the logistics providers that are trying to help customers gain efficiency? Uh, it wasn't that long ago we were talking a lot about just-in-time delivery. How does that take place? Is that, is that on the logistics side? Is it on the customer side? How, how does it all come together? Um, Eric, what's your experience? Well, in the world that I'm in, which is the trucks over the road, it's 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 always a customer telling us what they want. And 95% of the time they tell us how to do it. But you know, the 5% of the time we come up with an idea and they take it. The other 95 is the customer is the choice. Well, and Eric, what do you, maybe you could describe to us your company and what you move. You mentioned refrigerated goods. I assume that's food and maybe pharmaceuticals, but can you tell us a little bit about, about your business um, just so we can understand kind of where you're coming from? We're, we're, well, the legal term is called freight broker. It's, you know, we get uh, a Pilgrims of Purdue or Walmart, uh, Amazon, they'll call and say, all right, I need 20 trucks out of this plant to this destination and 20 loads out of this plant to this destination and we commit to their agreement with the rates and we go out and find the drivers to haul the loads. And uh, that's, they just tell us when and where to pick them up, and where to take them. And then we just get them done. Of course we have to agree on the rates, but, and then we take the chance to uh, find a truck for the price that we can make a profit or not. We don't win on every load. We lose probably one out of 20 loads, but we've got a formula where it, it all works. You're going to, you're going to lose on some. Well, and you've got a sh shortage of drivers now, right? Yeah, the U.S. Is, uh, has a big struggle with uh, with shortage of drivers, and and it makes it better for companies like mine because when Amazon calls and Pilgrims call it after hours and say, I need 15 trucks, we take all 15 loads. Our staff, our on-call staff stops what they're doing, and they get to finding those trucks and get them done. So all right, we've got a secret, I guess, of how we do it, but 
I'm not willing to tell how we do it, but we do uh, not say no. And we do always uh, come through. I say we're 90% accuracy on pickup and delivery, but we're not the cheapest. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, <laughs> I think that's important. Uh, David, David, how, how do you interact with uh, the, the, your customers and how does supply chain sort of come together? Yeah, no, certainly as we work to try to establish, again, these great logistics solutions for our customers, again, both in North America as well as our customers around the world, it's really a big concerted effort to work in concert with one another, certainly working with dealers and brokers uh, like Eric, but certainly in addition to working with trucking companies, but as well, you know, working with the very large steamship companies as well. CN's network is, is unique in that we are very much focused on linking ports. I mentioned Prince Rupert in Vancouver in the West. In addition to that, too, we've got Halifax and Montreal in the east, Gulfport, Mississippi, and the Port of New Orleans in the south. This very unique T-shaped network that goes all the way across America that very much starts and stops at these great ports. So we work very closely, not only with the port authorities and in the terminals to make certain that they understand where we're going, what our needs are, and again, helping to work with them to find solutions, but we're working hand in glove as well with the steamship companies, the folks that are actually gonna be pulling up to the port uh, trying to discharge several thousand containers, we want to make certain that certainly when we have an opportunity to handle those containers, that we're going to be able to get them safely and reliably and as smoothly as possible and get them going up into market. I think as well, really, again, when you look at the different ports that we're able to provide, I know a lot of people are putting up a lot of images of LA and Long Beach, but you know, certainly I think it now's a, a great opportunity to have conversations about alternative ports, Prince Rupert, Vancouver, in addition to that, too, again, is the Port of New Orleans after the uh, after the expansion of the Panama Canal some years ago. Is that an alternative uh, gateway into the U.S. Midwest, bypassing the, uh, the the West Coast of the United States? Certainly, there's a lot of solutions right now, and I think a lot of folks are really engaged in at trying to uncover and develop new products as we go through these unique times. It's going to be interesting to see again once we're out of this and once we're through this which one of those unique new solutions that uh, continue to stand and, and continue to provide some additional solutions going forward. There's, a, a, I think, some of the estimates that are out there that say within North American trade, sort of your NAFTA, now USMCA trade, about 74% of, of the goods and, and raw materials are moving by land, either rail or, or by truck. Um, with that, as important as the ports are, um, how, how do you connect the middle of the country? You know, sometimes we, we, we we hear people call it flyover country, but it's actually drive through and rail through country because that's where a lot of our productive capacity is. How important is the middle, I guess? Yeah, no, and again, to the point, we, we certainly talk about our T-shaped network and focus a lot of our efforts on those ports, but to the point, just as importantly are the manufacturers and the customers and the consumers within those as well. We certainly do a lot of business that's cross-continental, but in addition to that too, we also do a tremendous amount of regional moves. Uh, certainly, you look at, for instance, our support in the automobile industry, one out of every four finished automobiles that's made in the state of Michigan, if it leaves on a train, is going to leave on a CN train. We certainly work with a lot of our West Coast customers, our West Coast colleagues, to make certain that uh, those rails are handed off. But we certainly move a lot of uh, a lot of finished automobiles to markets like Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, around relatively short haul. But Again, I think that's kind of one of the unique things about rail is we continue to invest as we continue to develop some really uh, unique and innovative solutions and some very innovative technologies. We've seen over the last couple of years that cost curve continue to bend where, uh, again, that break-even point for a shipper looking at a truck versus looking at a rail is getting shorter and shorter. 
No longer is it just simply saying we're going to worry about a coast to coast. Now, if I'm a customer looking to move goods from point A to point B, um, you know, those num numbers have changed, giving me as a shipper some additional service alternatives beyond just some of the traditional ideas that we've seen before. Mm -hmm. And, and Eric, I, I know a lot of us have um, have gone through the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, teleworking, but your drivers are out there every day and they don't have the luxury of doing this from, from the comfort of their home, but that also means they're taking risks. How has the pandemic affected your ability to get drivers and what can you do to keep them safe uh, while they're out on the road and uh, just trying to get goods from one place to another? Professional truck drivers are a different breed than the rest of us. They uh, they enjoy their freedom of being in that truck and being their own boss and, and going from point A to point B and it never being the same thing every day. They may go to the same places every week, but they still go to a lot of different places. But, you know, we, all the, we've asked all the customers to be respectful, to let us um, either not come in on the docks and sign paperwork. Um, you know, we tell the drivers to get vaccinated, which I believe is a, is a, huge thing we ask them to wear the the kn95 type mask not just a handkerchief over their face because you got to be smart about it i mean you know it's, it's simple things um hand sanitizer you know stay in your truck don't get out try not to stay in the truck stops any longer than you have to just simple stuff like that common sense stuff well and if i could just jump in here um how, both of your industries, trucking and trains, were were essential, deemed essential when the Canada-U.S. border closed and the Canada and the U.S.-Mexico border closed. But but for a lot of people that Chris and I have been talking to over the last year, um, that border closure, e even when people were deemed essential, was was sort of hard to navigate. I wonder if you could talk a little bit. Was everything fine and smooth sailing, or are there lessons? Um, to be sort of drawn from this from this long period of border closure, Dave. I think we work very closely with obviously officials on both sides of that border. First and foremost, we immediately recognized that again. To your point, it's very difficult to drive a ten thousand foot train from the comfort and safety of your own home. Our employees were out there throughout this, and again, very proud of the fact that we really didn't miss a beat. Our great team was able to get out there, masks, obviously cleaning. Uh, hand sanitizers, all the tools, all the equipment that they needed. And keep in mind as well, we not only have to contend with uh, locomotive engineers and conductors that are out there operating, but oftentimes they're going to be going out to a destination and then not coming back. They're going to have to overnight, they're going to have to get a taxi cab to a hotel, a further layer of logistics and safety issues we had to contend with as well. And again, very proud of the great investments and the great work that our team did in that regard. But again, I think once we recognized that this was going to be a significant issue, we immediately got on the phone with our regulators, certainly kept the, the, the lawmakers briefed on this as well, but really working with the, with the regulators so they understood what we were going to be doing, the steps that we needed to make. And really, they were prepared, our regulators were prepared to provide assistance and support. And again, I think by and large, we were able to make the system uh, work. Uh, obviously, again, having a being a, a two-country network where we've got a number of border crossings, but Rainier, Minnesota is such a critical part of our network, again, connecting Prince Rupert and Vancouver uh, with the Midwest and with Chicago. Uh, being able to go through that border crossing uh, without delay and without issue is a critical part of keeping the network fluidity up and going. And again, I'm proud of the fact that we were able to, again, work with our regulators and make certain that we didn't have any issues uh, at that border. We got people the letters, we got people the communication, we got people the information that they needed, uh, and we continue to operate throughout. 
I'm glad to hear that. Eric, do you guys do cross-border trucking or are you mostly within the U.S.? We, no, we're a, a worldwide carrier. We do um, some rail. We do uh, the containers. We uh, we have a warehouse in Laredo. Um, you know, we ship stuff to Canada. Uh, the Laredo portion where our warehouse is, where we cross over like what they do, automotive parts, um, we didn't really have any trouble other than just, you know, the normal waiting on drivers. You know, that was a little fun in the beginning. But once everybody got comfortable with going and picking up at our facilities, you know, just like they were before, it went back to normal. Well, a new normal. And then the uh, we've had a little challenge with uh, going into Canada. Um, they've, they're a little... Uh, more strict than the Mexico border is because unless you've got your vaccination, you're really not coming across, which is fine by me. I didn't have a problem with it, but you can't make everybody in the world get a vaccine. So other than that, we haven't had any, any seen much trouble at all here in the town I live in. We just talked to our, our mayor and our city attorney and the officials and said, you know, here's what we got to do. If we don't do this, we're, you know, not going to be able to provide this to the country because I have about 20 employees and 15, 16 of us in the office, and they deemed us essential right off the rip before the, the U.S. government did that. So that's how we did it. We just talked to our local officials. And where do you live, Eric, just for everybody tuning in? I don't want people to have to guess your accent. Guess it. Well, it's real simple. I always like to tell people so they remember. I live in Tupelo, Mississippi, and I, I like to say me and Elvis Presley were both born here. <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing well i know we're going to wrap up in a second chris have you got a couple of couple of other questions before we uh before we wrap this episode of canusa street sure just a, just a small one I, I know we're coming up on the talks the un talks in glasgow about uh about climate change and the policies that come out of it transportation is a big part of that that story how we move goods back and forth and i know uh some of my neighbors would love to see the advent of electric cars solve all the problems, but we still couldn't survive without trucks and rail. How do you see some of the pressure on an environmental policy affecting the cost of transportation and the options available to you and your customers? Uh, I'll ask you, Eric, first and then, and then over to David. You know, I've got a lot of knowledge about the oil industry because my father-in-law is uh, one of the, the big guys that used to be part of uh, oil refineries all over the world. And, you mm -hmm. know, I think that we're just going to have to figure it out. Um, that's not a very good answer. I, I think we can all adapt. I, I think that um, the electric car market is going to uh, scare the heck out of the oil industry, and it may go up for a little while, but it, I don't know. We'll just all just have to adapt. Um, I do believe the oil industry is going to have to figure out that they're going to have to play ball. Um, the electric car market's coming. And if it doesn't, you know, we're all going to die before long. It won't be anytime soon. But what about our great-grandchildren great and their children? You know, we got to think down the road. Can't just be selfish about filling quotas and hitting numbers. So it's we got to change. I'm, I'm open to whatever, but diesel is a, it's a big, huge part of that. The new DEF system in the U.S. is not really efficient. It's not really helping. The new what system, Eric? The, the DEF system, the U.S. trucks, I don't know if the Canadian trucks have to do it, the diesel emission fluid is supposed to make it burn cleaner and burn uh, less emissions and or produce less emissions. But we've all figured out that it's actually, it's just worse because it's costing more money to keep it up. It's, it's not worth the, the hassle because your trucks are breaking down. And plus, I, I don't think it's uh, saved any emissions at all. If, if any, it's just a small fraction which I don't mind change if you're going to be, you know, super helpful, but for a small fraction, 
to have all the trouble we had with death on the trucks because the, the whole death system could shut a whole truck down. Hmm. And then you're, then you got one less truck. So if we took our death system away today during the pandemic temporarily and let, let the older trucks get on the road and the trucks without death on the road, that would help, but it may cause more. I don't think it cause more problems to the economy for the pollution, but then I'm not an environmentalist either, but. So the uh, freight rail industry, I think, is excited to really partner with governments around the world in order to help provide some additional sustainable transportation solutions. You know, when we look at uh, where we are in regards to our fuel consumption, uh, you know, it's really a game of physics and momentum. What's unique is when we look at these massive freight trains that we operate, these 10,000, 12,000 foot long freight trains, really the contact patch between the wheel and the rail is really only about the size of your of your fingernail. So when you have that little contact patch and that much momentum, we're actually able to move a ton of freight more than 420 some odd miles on a gallon of diesel. So fortunately, when you look at kind of the, the timeline, the, the continuum of fuel efficiency and sustainability when it comes to different parts of the transportation supply chain, Fortunately, rail is, again, has a very great sustainability story to tell. CN, by virtue of the fact that we're very invested and very active in developing some really unique solutions, we're actually the most fuel efficient uh, freight railroad in North America. And in the last quarter alone, we were actually able to increase our fuel efficiency by another 4%. So it's certainly something that we feel like if we're going to have a serious conversation about addressing a lot of these sustainability issues ahead, we look at freight rail as having an important role at the table and helping to partner with governments in order to help provide these solutions. Thanks for, thanks for that, Dave. I, before we let you go, I will just say the other thing I remember about rail uh, from my time, I took a trip to Prince Rupert. Uh, and I, I remember that that particular port is something like three or four days closer to Asia by sea, just right. the geography of it. So you save time. But also, isn't it like 100% of rail cars coming into the United States are screened, right? Like there's gamma trucks. So in terms, not only do you have the environmental sort of side of things, but you've also been working on the security of the goods as well. Isn't that right? So we work very closely with our colleagues over at Customs and Border Patrol. And really one of the great things that we're actually able to do is as trains are moving their way across Canada, we're able to work with Customs and Border Patrol and they're able to go through their series of checks and figure out if there, as a particular train approaches, for instance, our crossing in Rainier, Minnesota, if there's a particular box, which perhaps because of paperwork or because of some history, they wanna be able to actually do a visual inspection of that box. Our train is gonna pull into that Rainier border crossing. Obviously the whole train is gonna go through a VACA system, which is a, a live X-ray system. But we've made investments in order to pull up that train stops a forklift comes out and grabs that box, takes the box that Customs and Border Patrol wants to look at, puts it on the pavement, and the whole train keeps going. So instead of having all 300 boxes wait for that one train to have that inspection, we're going to take that train off. It only takes a, just a few minutes. Customs and Border Patrol can take a look inside that box. Once they're satisfied, the next train that comes along, that box is going to go on that train and the system goes. So the idea is that if there's one box that needs an investigation, we're not going to hold up another 300 boxes in order to do that. So again, part of our commitment to helping to maintain safe and secure borders, and we couldn't do that without working with our partners on both sides of the uh, both sides of the border when it comes to. All right. Well, David Woodruff, thank you so much for coming. Scotty and Chris, thanks very much for the dialogue and the important opportunity to have a great conversation. Look forward to working with you again soon. 
And Eric Hampton, first of all, thank you for calling me a few weeks ago out of the blue to talk about the Canada-US trucking solution you've come up with. And and thank you also for joining us today. I learned a lot. Yes, ma'am. I thank y'all for your time and I appreciate all your diligent work that you do. And I'd be uh, glad to be assistance any way we can. Well, and, and we appreciate you. You've done, done a great job keeping America rolling uh, and Canada too. So uh, during this pandemic, we need more people like you. Thank you very much. We love Canada. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation. I learned a lot. You know, it's hard not to get excited. The little kid in us gets excited about um, about trucks and trains whenever we think about uh, things moving around. But it's also an enormous part of the economy, as you observed, Chris. And and I, you know, I appreciate our two guests sharing their wisdom with us. Well, and and really, the one thing that the that the pandemic, that border interruptions, that that our modern world. Im- sort of brings home is that globalization means the things you rely on every day may come from a long, long way from your home. We rely on people to move those goods back and forth. And and both Eric and, and Dave were just giving us a real sense of what it takes to support the, the lifestyle we enjoy, our quality of life every day. It doesn't just happen. It It is a lot of hard work and some people taking real risks to make that work for us every day. And I, I'm very grateful to meet them. And uh, we need more people like it as we go from Canusa Street to figuring out uh, what makes that street run. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the other thing that was kind of great is um, I love learning something new. And one of the things, the innovations that David Woodruff talked about um, has to do with security, which is, you know, you're constantly trying to balance wanting to get goods to market as quickly as possible, especially with the supply chain crunch we have, right? And, but you also want it to be secure. You want to make sure that the goods that are moving, you know, that it's not contraband, that it's not something that ought not be coming into our borders, right? And so that tension between making it really secure and and getting it here as quickly as possible, that's a, that's a very real challenge. So this idea, and he painted the picture really well, there, that if, uh, if the law enforcement officials, Customs and Border Patrol, see, see a, a box that they want to look at a little more carefully, which is their right to do, and thank goodness that they're keeping us safe every day, um, instead of holding up the whole train for hours and hours or however long it takes, they just pluck off that box and, and examine it, check it out, and put it on the next train coming by. I think, I didn't know that. I think that's very cool. I do know UPS, when maybe we'll have them on Canusa Street, um, has a similar program at their facility in Kentucky, at their Worldport facility, where if they have these conveyor belts where they're moving packages um, from wow. a plane, you know, through a conveyor belt to another plane to its destination, and uh, they have a barcode system. And if Customs and Border Patrol, that they're housed in the facility, and if they see a package that they want to check out, it just gets pulled off the conveyor belt. It gets looked at. And actually, UPS, is, if I remember this right, assigns kind of an ambassador to track that package um, so that so that they can really meet their deadlines and they can know exactly when something is going to go. So, I, you know, the fact that trains are doing it's one thing to do it for a box that I can pick up myself to do it for a container off of a train. That's pretty cool. And, you know, maybe we'll also uh, talk to the shipping industry at some point on Canusa Street, Chris, as we unpack um the supply chain challenges, but then also we try to figure out what some of the solutions are. I think that would be a good, a good thing for us to explore here in the future. 
Absolutely. And, and, and I think something that is often lost on some of our, our younger colleagues and friends, maybe some of our listeners, is it wasn't that long ago you would go and find around Toronto and Montreal big warehouses because everything from the U.S. went to those cities and then got distributed east-west to all the towns of Canada. And one of the things that our free trade agreements have allowed us to do is create more efficient networks where the supply hub for Vancouver might be in Washington State or Montana. The supply hub for Quebec might be in Massachusetts. Same for, for, for some of the Atlantic provinces. And by making those uh, networks reflect efficiency and not just the line on the on the border, uh, I think we've been able to save a lot of money and make North America that much more competitive. It's, it's little things that add up that have really transformed our North American way of life and very much transformed the way Canada operates and the cost of goods to Canadian consumers. That's a great point, Chris. And I, I really look forward to us continuing on Canusa Street to tackle some of the issues that are less understood, but that are really important in what uh, is this the most prosperous relationship on earth between two of the best friends on earth. So I'm I'm excited we continue to, to chug away at this and I look forward to our next get together here on Canusa Street. Me too. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, Help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.